Okay, while we're getting ready, I'll go over a couple of announcements. The main announcement is a, a clarification on what I said on Tuesday night. We will more than likely finish 2 Samuel on Tuesday after 229 hours, so that took us a little over four years. And then um, what I'm going to do after that, because there were some 72, 73-odd psalms that David wrote that are ascribed to David, there are some, like Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, that are not ascribed to David in uh, in, this, in, in the Psalms as we have them, but the New Testament says David wrote them. So there's probably a number of other Psalms that were written by David, but we will take some time. These are Psalms that were not... These are Psalms that don't have a historical ascription to them. So what I would like to do because of the fact that many of them were written at times when David is facing problems, hostility, difficulties, enemies. Uh, basically, he's fa facing a lot of outside pressure from adversity, and it is in these psalms that we learn about God because the way in which he handles problems is the way we should. He starts focusing on the essence of God, and once he starts focusing on the essence of God, then the problems that come along in everyday life begin to uh, disappear. I don't know why I suddenly have a tickle in my throat. Anyway, so that's what we're going to do. And then at some period uh, around the end of the year or maybe after I come back from Kiev, God willing that A, I go to Kiev and B, that I return from Kiev. We never know in, in this, this world, but uh, I was just informed by Eager yesterday that the Ukrainian government suddenly decided that they were going to not allow any foreigners out or in uh, for, until the end of September. So, you know, that affects airlines and all kinds of stuff. So it's just a mess. By the way, the Myers will be coming back at the end of October to exercise their franchise, and then right after the 3rd, they'll be going back. So we can pray for them that they will be able to do that. So basically, that's it for, uh, for the announcements. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, that we're not letting all of the chaos that swirls around us affect our mental attitude. The only way to stabilize our mental attitude is with the word of God. And so we need to make sure that we confess sins regularly and then that we keep our focus on the word. That's what that promise means when it says stayed on thee. It means to stay put, to stay focused upon God and let him be our, our rock of stability. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then uh, if, and for confession of sin if necessary, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're thankful for this time that we can come together, that we can focus upon you, focus upon your word, that we can reflect upon that which you have revealed to us, 
and understand the implications of what are said as well as the application of what is said. That we can come to understand that not only did you create the universe and the earth with absolute laws of physics and biology, but also embedded within human creation absolute laws that relate to social organization. And it is through understanding those things that we come to understand uh, how a government should be run and how a government should be organized and that nothing is inherently wrong in government or nations because they are instituted by you and there will always be a government and there will always be nations. And so we need to understand what the biblical foundation is so that we can apply that in our thinking about our own nation and our own government. And we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of Scripture, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to get into a variety of interesting things this evening, and this will take us a couple of weeks to work our way through all of this particular teaching that the scripture has. So we're going to tonight focus on the fifth divine institution, which is that of independent nations. number of different ways that this has been identified. I remember when Charlie Clough taught this back in the 70s, he called it tribal diversity. And that is a good title because ultimately The beginning is in different tribes, and we'll look at that when we look at Genesis chapter 10 tonight. Others have called it nationalism, which was a very good and useful term up until Marxist, socialists, and leftists, and globalists after World War II in the search for world peace uh, suddenly decided it was the reason that we had wars, and we'll look at that. And actually what the Bible is teaching, uh, in order to avoid all of the negatives that uh, some have piled onto the word nationalism, and so for some today it's a dog whistle for racism and a number of other things, actually what God is establishing is the significance of independent nations, autonomous nations, sovereign nations. And this can be demonstrated very clearly through the Word of God, And it also has absolutely nothing to do with race, as we'll see, because we have to define what is the foundation biblically for a nation. What is it that brings nations into existence? And so once we understand the history, going back to the earliest information that we have, which comes from the Bible, then we can begin to see what develops within history as the battle over nations and why. And all of this is important because the battle continues through our generation as it has ever since the events of Genesis chapter 11. So once again, we're looking at the issue raised in Psalm 11.3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? emphasizing this idea of righteousness and justice as foundational to those who are central to the survival, the stability of a nation. And people understand that all the time because this is the buzzword that you get, whether it's used rightly or wrongly, people want to say the right things and sound like they're talking about the right things. And so they want to talk about righteousness and justice even if they don't have a biblical uh, definition for the term, even if it's just they're just giving the term lip service to satisfy their own agenda. So we've looked at these divine institutions. We've looked at the first three that were all instituted before the fall for the purpose of promoting the productivity and the prosperity and the advance of civilization. This is before their sin. So God intended this. When he created man and put him on the earth, what was their mission? To be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth and rule over it. That was, and there's nothing negative in that. 
they're perfect. Adam and Eve were created perfect without sin. There was no selfishness. There's no uh, desire to uh, extort or abuse the, the planet. That comes only after there is sin. And then we traced the, the uh, influence of sin on the earliest civilization known as the antediluvian civilization. Diluvian from the word related to deluge. Ante, A-N-T-E, means before the deluge. So this is the civilization from Adam to Noah. And we saw that there were basically three pictures or portraits all related to murder, violence, the violation of the first three divine institutions, and the rise of an assault on the human race and the genetic purity of the human race through uh, uh, an intersection with the demons. And that's in Genesis chapter 6. So God wipes, every, wipes the board clean, and he's going to start over with Noah and his wife and their three sons and their three wives after the flood. And the first thing he does is to establish a covenant, a covenant with uh, Noah. And that establishes the foundation for human government. And it's post-fall, so the purpose is to restrain sin and evil because there was nothing beyond family authority to restrain sin and evil in the antediluvian civilization. So now we're going to have government and judicial authority with a purpose to restrain evil and to protect those first three divine institutions. And tonight we're going to look at why God establishes independent nations, again, in order to restrain evil, in order to provide for uh, prosperity and the productivity and the protection of the human race. And then we'll look in a couple of weeks at Israel, which is called out to be a blessing for all mankind. So all of these relate to anyone, whether they're a believer, whether they are an unbeliever. If these are followed by a culture, a tribe, a uh, civilization, then they will have a measure of stability and prosperity. And that's what we've seen in the definition of a divine institution, absolute social structures instituted by God for the entire human race, believers and unbelievers alike. And so this is not something that's a social construct. It's not something invented pragmatically by the human race, but something that was uh, developed and, and created and established by God. Now, we ask the question sometimes as we look at the world and we look at the wars, and especially over the last hundred years, we uh, just a couple of years ago remembered the end of the first global conflict called the First World War, and then we had the Second World War. Some have agreed with Churchill, I think he's right, that this was really a modern 30 years war with a period of peace in between the two, that they are intimately connected. And frankly, most of what we have seen in modern history since the end of World War II, since the signing of the armistice uh, at the end of World War II, has been the result of how that war ended and uh, the result of that armistice that was uh, uh, pretty... Uh, pretty egregious in the way it imposed so many harsh penalties on Germany. And that is uh, part of the cause of the Second World War. And at the end of the Second World War, there's the creation of a new, what some have called a Pax Americana, Pax from the Latin meaning the American peace. And so it's a, a, a new uh, era and you have various developments within that era that we will uh, that we will talk about. But there continue to be these flare-ups and these wars. I remember some 40 years ago when I was in college that there was a, that when I was in ROTC, they at that time they talked about how many wars, border clashes, fights, uh, revolts, rebellions that had taken place from the end of World War II uh, up until the mid our early 70s, and it worked out to a little more than one per month. 
And so in the era when there was supposed to be world peace because of the United Nations, uh, this was anything but a peaceful time. And so the world order that came out of out of uh, World War II was not able to establish that. So people asked the question, do we really need to have nations? Are nations really necessary? Are borders uh, really ne- necessary? Some people believe that one of the major problems and causes of of, of many of the problems we face in a modern world is the existence of nations, and they will identify that with the term uh, nationalism, and that that has become the source of all evil. And their reasoning is, if it were not for all of these people choosing up sides, one nation against another, and getting into a testosterone-driven competition, uh, we could have genuine world peace and prosperity, and we could go forward and solve the other problems of humanity like global warming and pandemics and all of these other things, but we just need to all uh, come together and we all need to be together. In fact, how many times have we heard uh, beauty contest judges ask ask each of the contestants, uh, in your opinion, what would you like to do if you could accomplish one thing in the world, what would that be? And the answer has been world peace. Oh, world peace. That's what they want. Everybody understands that, and we joke about it and everything else and even have bumper stickers with world peace on it instead of world peace, but we understand that. So this is one of the things that is at the very center of the heartbeat of a lot of modern politics and a lot of modern leadership. We have to define what we mean by independent nations. This is very important, and I think maybe the best way we should start is to understand its antithesis. What is the antithesis of independent nations? The left, or leftists as it should be identified, especially those who ascribe to socialism and communism, have been attacking the concept of independent nations or nationalism since the end of World War II. I mean, almost from the beginning, there's been this full-bore assault against international, I mean, against nationalism. So it didn't begin with the current rise in leftist attacks on the government. It didn't start with the election of Donald Trump. It, the battle crystallized because most of the U.S. presidents that we have had since the end of World War II ascribed to one degree or another to globalism and to internationalism. When we came out of World War II after uh, approximately 30 years or so of horrific fighting, devastation, uh, millions and millions uh, killed either on the battlefield or in many cases through diseases that came along as a result of, of living in the conditions that they lived in, especially in the trenches of World War II. And then with World War, I mean the conditions of World War One, and then uh, at the end of World War II witnessing the uh, horrific nature of the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It was the desire of the world to put war aside and to have stability and to have world peace. And so as a result of that, they went back to what was Woodrow Wilson's vision of a world order at the end of World War One, and he established something called the League of Nations. And it's interesting that the United States Congress did not approve of the League of Nations, and so we did not join the League of Nations. And so we have the League of Nations, and then you get into, um, you go to World War II, and it's going to be replaced with the United Nations. And they revised, and of course the United States now is going to be after World War II, They have risen to be a major world power, and so they are going to play a significant role in the United Nations. But what is the nature of the United Nations? 
Don't pay attention to formal documents. Don't pay attention to what politicians say. We have to pay attention to their architecture. And if you go to the United Nations building in New York, and I didn't have time to find these slides today, but you can go to the entry and uh, carved into the stone over the entry to the United Nations is a verse from the Old Testament Jewish prophet Isaiah. And in chapter 2, verse 4, we read, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And that is inscribed over the entry to the UN. So in essence, they're making a religious claim. They are taking, they are in, in a form of cultural appropriation, which is so looked down upon today. They are appropriating this passage out of the Hebrew Scripture and claiming that they are the organization that's going to fulfill this. They're the ones who are going to bring in the kingdom. They're the ones who are going to bring in this utopic state where there will need, uh, there will be no war. Now, the context of Isaiah 2.4 is important. In the second chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah is talking about the characteristics of a future kingdom the future messianic kingdom that will be centered in Jerusalem, that there'll be a new temple during this messianic kingdom, that all of the world will come to that temple, and that the this worldwide blessing will take place. And as a result of that, not only will there be no more warfare, there will be economic stability. Part of the curse of sin will be rolled back so that the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. And later on, he talks about uh, that a child will be able to put his hand into a cobra's den and there won't be any negative. So part of the curse of sin is rolled back and this will be a an almost perfect environment for what Revelation 20 describes as a 1,000-year kingdom. You want to know where um, Adolf Hitler came up with the idea that, that the Third Reich, the Third Empire of Germany, was going to be a 1,000 years? He stole it from the Bible. And so, in some sense, that makes uh, Nazism a heresy because it steals from the Bible just like Marxism is. So if we're going to call Marxism a, a Christian heresy, we have to call Nazism uh, Christian heresy. There's nothing Christian about either, either ideology, but they steal ideas from Christianity and then, uh, and then they twisted them. So by using this verse, the United Nations is saying that they as an organization are going to fulfill this biblical uh, prophecy. That means that they recognize that underlying their whole philosophy is a religious commitment. And it's a religious commitment that deifies man and human organizations as being able to bring in that kingdom as opposed to submitting to God where God through his Messiah will defeat the enemies of God and establish the kingdom. So what we see through all of this is this desire on the part of what I want to call the kingdom of man and all of its manifestations in attempting to establish a utopic state. Now, ultimately, who is it that's behind that? Well, if you read through your Bible and you go to the book of Revelation and read it, you know that ultimately this is the one who's behind this, uh, the one world government that comes in at the end of days, at the end times, is Satan. Satan is the one who wants to unify the world against God. Ever since God uh, broke up the unified hum human race at the Tower of Babel, ever since then, Satan has been attempting to reunify the human race. So we can say with certainty that whenever you have people who are focused on a one-world government, when they're focused on a new world order, when they're focused on globalism, when they're focused on internationalism, they are the puppets of Satan. 
They are doing the devil's work. They're under demonic influence because that is his goal. And so this it helps us to understand uh, some of the problems that occur with internationalism. And if we think about it, some of the things that we've seen in the last 20 years are evidence of this battle that is taking place between those who are globalists, those who are internationalists, those who are the pawns of Satan, and, uh, and those who understand the significance of independent nations and the importance of borders. This is not in order to have wars. It's not for the purpose of uh, exploiting one race or another, as I'll demonstrate a little later on, but it's a recognition that that was God's divine order. And um, the problem is the globalists want to bring in a utopic state. Now, what we saw earlier in this series when we were studying worldview, we saw that there are basically two worldviews. There's the worldview of the Bible that I identified as a Judeo-Christian worldview. And then we have the worldview of naturalism. This excludes God or any deities. Everything is comes in a natural order by uh, simply by time plus chance. Everything uh, develops without any involvement from any uh, any deity. Those are your two are your two options in in naturalism. There's no basis for really defining evil and good other than what man the creature thinks is better or worse. There's no such thing as absolute good and absolute evil. If you think about it. What's the mechanism in Darwinism? The mechanism in Darwinism is survival of the fittest, right? That's the slogan. Survival. Is survival the result of competition? Is it the result of fighting? Is it the result of violence? Certainly it is. And so the means and mechanism of advance within Darwinism is violence. It's one group showing their physical superiority to another group, and that means those who have the better genes, uh, have evolved the better genes, they're going to, by virtue of just brute force and survival, they're going to produce uh, and develop into something superior. Now, that's never been demonstrated at all. The problem with the slogan, uh, survival of the fittest, is it never, ever explains how the fittest got there. Survival of the fittest never explains the arrival of the fittest. And so it, it just isn't going to work. But if you don't have a sense of right and wrong, you don't have a, a philosophical or theological basis for saying something is evil or something is good, then you don't really have a view that man is basically corrupt and basically a sinner. Man is, for them, the man is basically good. And so man is, if man is basically good, man is, is perfectible. And if man is perfectible, then man's social organizations are necessarily perfectible. And so you can perfect the kingdom of man and bring in uh, a utopia. So the starting point for uh, leftists, the starting point for Marxism, the starting point for uh, uh, socialism always is grounded in naturalism. It excludes God. It excludes anything supernatural. And it tries to invent its own ethical system, but it's just based upon uh, nothing more than pragmatism. So they reject the concept of sin or evil, believe humans are essentially good, and therefore it's not man that's the problem. The problem is the environment around man. I don't mean environment in the sense of environmentalism. It has something to do with the culture, something to do with education, something to do with uh, poverty, something to do with social structure. Those are the problems. And if we could just straighten those things out, if we could just straighten out this problem of nations warring against other nations, then we could have world peace and we could solve these problems and we could bring in a, a utopic state. 
Uh, that's the fundamentals of where that worldview takes you. But what we see is just the opposite in the Bible. The Bible rejects globalism or internationalism, and that started at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. So this it shows that, and I'll demonstrate this by going through the Scripture, that God establishes individual nations. And not only does he establish individual nations, but God establishes uh, the borders. And so God is the one who sets up the whole idea of national sovereignty. Now, national sovereignty isn't something that is uh, necessarily going to create, um, uh, create wars. How do you know that? Because you will have nations in the millennial kingdom. We'll look at some of those verses later on. You'll have nations in the millennial kingdom, and when you get into Revelation 21 and 22, there are nations in eternity. But because there's no sin, there's no war. Because there's no sin, there's no uh, conflict between the nations. So nations are something that are instituted by God in Genesis chapter 11, but they will continue on into uh, the eternal state. And so the Bible teaches that it's God, not human beings, who originated nations and instituted borders. And as we will see, it, was, it all started uh, at, at, with the Tower of Babel. So what I'm going to call this is not nationalism, but independent nations, trying to get away because, as I'll show you, this has nothing to do with racism or any of the other things that are associated with it uh, by those who want to destroy God's plan for the world in terms of nations. Now, we know that in the end times, based upon what the Scripture teaches, that there's going to be imposed a world order, a unified world order, a kingdom where there's the attempt to bring about world peace, and this is going to be under the authority of what uh, Daniel refers to as the prince who is to come and what uh, Thessalonians refers to uh, as the lawless one. Think about that, the lawless one. What do we see all around us today? Western civilization has become basically lawless. They have rejected the rule of law. Uh, many countries give lip service to their constitutions or their historical legal framework, and they just ignore it. Uh, this is what is happening in the United States. When uh, Houston, when we had an election two years ago, uh, one of the things that was happening was you had Beto O'Rourke, who was running against uh, Ted Cruz for Senate. And so what happened um, in the Democrat Party is they just told all these people that they rounded up and put on buses and took to the polls, just vote a straight Democrat ticket. Uh, one result of that was that a lot of incumbent Republican judges who were good judges were all fired. And they were replaced by those who had no experience and really didn't understand the law. And the reports that I've gotten from uh, the, what's going on in the, in the local courtrooms is that when these judges show up, they just make up the law. They don't know what the law reads. They don't have the experience. They don't have the background in order to uh, really uh, function as, as a judge. And so, but this, this isn't just something unique to the Democrat Party. You have a lot of Republicans that are antinomian. The, the whole culture has become antinomian. We, we believe the end justifies the means, and we'll just make it up as we go along. And if we don't like some law, we'll just say, well, that's an antiquated law, and I'm just going to ignore it, and nobody's going to hold me to it. And this, is, this happens on both sides of the aisle. And yet, when the Antichrist comes, he's identified as the lawless one. So, Lawlessness uh, is best defined as a rejection of uh, what God has laid down, what the absolutes are. So we see that what the Bible teaches is that God established these nations. Now, I want you to think a minute. We're going to get into some deep thought here. This is really important. How many of 
the ills of mankind can be traced back to wars, battles, skirmishes, all through history. You just think about all of the territorial claims and the battles. We, we just got through going through First and Second Samuel on Tuesday nights, all the different battles and all the different wars and how brutal those wars were and the killing and the loss of fortunes, the loss of property as land changed hands from one uh, one country to another, and you spread that out, you look at the history of empires in the ancient world. You have the Egyptians, then you have the uh, Babylonians, and you have the Assyrians, and then you have the Parthians in the Middle East, and you have the Greeks under Alexander the Great, and then you have the Romans, and all of these different empires, and their whole agenda is to exercise their power to create a hegemonic base. That means that that they're going to extend their authority over multiple nations, and they are going to, to, in order to bring what? World peace, in order to bring stability. And they take over these other nations so that their central power is then going to dictate conditions to each of those subordinate independent states. But you have all of these wars, and then you get into the period of the Middle Ages, and we got a lot more going on in terms of wars. We're not touching the wars that were constantly going on in Asia, in India, in Afghanistan, in Russia, and uh, you have the Mongol hordes that are coming through, and you can trace that up. You have the Crusades, then you have all the little wars between all the little duchies uh, in Europe and all the independent states, because remember, uh, Europe is not, you didn't have a Germany, you didn't have a France, you didn't have an England, a Great Britain, you didn't have an Italy. Uh, those didn't exist uh, in the case of Italy and Germany, they didn't exist until the 19th century. In the case of France, it's just pulling itself together uh, in the 16th century and 17th century, and England uh, just prior to that. And so, uh, you don't have nations in the sense of the nations you have today. We had these smaller groups, so you have all of this war. Now, the reason I've elaborated on this is because a lot of people think if we just did away with nations, we wouldn't have all of this. But we're going to take ourselves back to somewhere around 2800 B.C., and God's looking down on what these guys are doing at, in Babel, and they're building this tower. And it's the result of the fact that they haven't followed God's command, and they haven't scattered to fill the earth, and they have stayed together, and they've unified themselves against God. And God says, I'm going to be real anthropomorphic here. He always knew everything he was going to do, and I'm going to be anthropopathic. And God's sitting here going, what am I going to do? Well, I've got two, two or three options. One option is I can let them all work together, but because I'm omniscient, I know what's going to happen if they all work together as a unity. And that is absolutely catastrophic, and it is absolutely horrible. But I also know that I have the option to divide them into various tribal groups and clans, and eventually these will develop into city-states and nations. And they're going to have a lot of problems too. But God's saying, in my omniscience, because I know all of the knowable, I know that it's going to be better to divide everybody up with all the horrors and all of the wars and all of the other things that are going to come along. And we think about the millions and millions of people killed in, in the 20th century and all of these global wars. God is still saying it's going to be better in the long run if I divide them up so they can't unify than if I leave them unified. Now just think about that. That's the same thing with government. People say, oh, well, government's just horrible. Well, God in his omniscience said, I got two options, no government or government, and it's going to be a lot better if I give them government, even though that's not going to be so great. Capital punishment or no capital punishment? Well, if I give them capital punishment, they're going to abuse it, and there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be executed and hanged and everything else unjustly who are innocent, but that's going to be a lot better if I don't put a restraint on sin. So God in his omniscience says, 
that it's better to divide them up according to, uh, on the basis of language, and they'll divide up into clans and tribes and city-states and nations eventually. That's going to ultimately be better for the human race than not to do that. And so we have to think of it that way, that God is not just coming up with with this on the spur of the moment and saying, oh, golly gee, what will I do? Let's just do this. He knows what the end results are going to be from each one of his decisions. So another way to ask this is, is it God's will for there to be independent, distinct, sovereign nations? And the answer is yes, because the alternatives were all worse. And God knew all the alternatives and alternatives no one else ever thought about. And just as we learned last week, that government is not inherently evil because Isaiah 9-6 says that when the Messiah comes, then the government will rest upon his shoulders and he will govern for a thousand years a, the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom that will be a worldwide kingdom. And, that it, and it works because, mostly because he's perfect. There will be a rebellion because there will be people who hate justice. They hate the restraint on sin. And so there will be so many that they will be numbered as the sand of the seashore as Satan leads them in a revolt against Jesus Christ at the end of the millennial kingdom. So there there won't be a perfect life on this planet because essentially a sin. That is the Judeo-Christian worldview. So we know that in our world today... Everything from individual responsibility to marriage to family to human government to nations have been corrupted by sin. Now, that doesn't mean we just, we just accept it. We can constantly work to improve it, but we're never going to perfect it. It's never going to uh, be perfect. It's never going to be uh, utopic. And to understand all of this, we have to understand history. This is why we study history. And when we study history, we discover the idea of nations and tribal diversity goes far back into history, and it goes back uh, to the passage in Genesis chapter 11. But to get there, we have to understand the origin of it. What's the background to the Tower of Babel? And this, again, is very illuminating. In the last couple of lessons, when we talked about government, we showed what happened leading up to the flood of Noah. We saw what happened at the aftermath of the flood when the first thing that happens is Noah has builds altars and he sacrifices animals and they worship God and God comes and enters into an unconditional, everlasting covenant with Noah. And we saw that in that covenant, there are things that God is going to promise to never do again. He will never destroy the earth again, and he's going to put a bow in the sky as a sign that he's not going to make war against mankind in that way again. He will never destroy the earth by by flood. He gives man certain responsibilities as part of that covenant and certain new privileges that are part of that covenant that are indicated. All of this is indicated by the sign of the bow. And we've studied all of this, th- this before, that God authorizes the eating of animal flesh, that God authorizes capital punishment. But the m- primary command that starts it off is in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. And Genesis 9, 1 is going to reiterate the basic command of the creation covenant in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, And God is going to give three commands. They're in the imperative mood in the Hebrew, which means that these are universal mandates for the human race. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the idea. They are to expand around the earth as they grow from generation to generation and as they multiply from you know, having multiple children, etc., they are going to fill the earth. Each of those three verbs, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, are, are mandates that are still in effect. We still are to, as the human beings created in the image of God, 
to exploit in the positive sense, to learn about, develop, and utilize in a good sense all of the natural resources that God has created and put on on the planet. And so, first of all, God delegated judicial responsibility to man, as that's symbolized by the by the uh, death penalty. Man, whoever sheds man's blood in verse six, by man his blood shall be shed. That means you have to have justice. You have to have a system of justice. You have a have to. It can't be just he said, she said. You have to have witnesses, and all of this later gets laid out in the in the Mosaic. Uh, covenant. And then as the human race developed, we have Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10 is pretty interesting. If you look at this chapter as a whole, it's going to describe the descendants of Noah. Noah had three sons. They had their wives. And in those three, three sons, you see the three broad branches of humanity. And their descendants are described here in these verses in Genesis chapter 10, verses 1 to 32. In verses 1 through 5, you have the descendants of Japheth. We can trace those out, and Japheth is basically the father of all of the Indo-European groups. That would include the Persians or the Iranians today. It would include all of your uh, European, basically your European uh, tribes, clans and tribes that came together, and over a period of uh, a couple of different millennia, they eventually developed into the nations that we have today in the new attempt at uh, at uh, empire by the uh, EU. It's interesting, isn't it, that the Germans did not unify until the late 19th century. And as soon as they unified, they went out and tried to conquer the world. You had the Franco-Prussian War, and then you had World War One, and then you had World War Two. And after being shut down in, in those wars, what happens? You have the rise of internationalism, and the Germans recover, and then you have the development of the EU, and who's dominating the EU? It's the Germans. A couple of years ago, there was an attempt by the, uh, the Italians. They thought they still had national sovereignty, and they're going to appoint a, a finance minister, I believe it was, and uh, they were going to appoint this finance minister, and the Germans in the EU came along and said, no, you don't. We don't want him. We want somebody else. He's going to be uh, more amenable to our purposes. And so they prohibited. See, that's a violation of national sovereignty. It's internationalism, and it's a number, another form of, of empire building. And all of this is, uh, is the kind of thing that we're going to see as we develop out this, this particular lesson. So as we come to this chapter, in chapter 10, we have the list of the descendants of Japheth in those first five verses. Five verses out of 32. That's not a big emphasis. The second group is the biggest group, and that's from verse 6 to verse 20. That's 15 verses, and that section describes the descendants of Ham. Ham uh, is the father of Canaan. Now, Canaan's the one who gets cursed by Noah in that prophetic uh, statement of his back in chapter uh, 9. We're not going to go back there and look at it, but he gives a blessing to Japheth and a blessing to Shem. There's no blessing or curse for Ham and his descendants, which include Africans and Asians and a number of other people, um, but there's a curse on Canaan because of, a, of uh, the illusion of some sort of sexual sin, whether it was just mental or physical, we don't know. But that is going to be played out in his descendants, who are, of course, the Canaanites, who continue to show the grossest perversion of sexual sins in their country. God gave them 400 uh, years to stop that's a lot of grace. That's a lot. Uh, you know, people say, oh, God is so harsh because he destroyed them all. Well, he got a, gave them 400 years to straighten it out. Uh, that, that's pretty, uh, pretty gracious of God. And so we have that section. That's the one we're going to focus on. And then the last section d- deals with Shem. And Shem is, of course, the line of the Jews. And so these will become known, all of his descendants are really Semites, that comes from the name Shem, but it's usually just applied to to the Jews. 
And so that covers the section from 21 down, uh, down to 32. And that's the, uh, uh, the, those are the three sections. Now, Ham's the focal point. And even though Shem is going to be developed more as we go along, what we see is an emphasis on Ham here from, from 6 to 15. And Ham's going to be the focal point of what we see happen in the first part of chapter 11. But it's helpful to go back and look at this because this is the beginning of empire. And empire, an empire is the beginning of international. That's the ancient form of internationalism. And what you have is the rise of a powerful warrior by the name of Nimrod. Nimrod is mentioned three times in the Old Testament. He's mentioned here in Genesis 10, 8 through 12. He's mentioned later in 1 Chronicles 1, 10. Now remember, Chronicles is written after the Jews returned from their uh, Babylonian captivity. They treat the accounts in Genesis as actual historical events. And in Micah 5, 6, Micah's a prophet who's before the uh, Babylonian uh, invasion, and Micah is a prophet at the same time as Isaiah. And in My- Micah writes, They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he, God, will de- shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our, within our borders. A point here is that the, throughout Scripture, Nimrod's historicity is accepted. Now, what's interesting, as I read widely and watch things widely and try to study as widely as I can, is that in the last couple of years, I've run across a number of Israeli-American writers who are writing on this topic of the importance of nations, and they clearly and accurately define nationalism. They will use that word and they use it unapologetically and clearly remove from it any sense of racism, any sense of all of the negatives that liberals want to associate with it. And one of these uh, writers is a man by the name of Yoram Hazoni. I believe he's an American Israeli, and uh, he has written a book called The Virtue of Nationalism. And this guy is absolutely brilliant. And it's interesting. Where does he start nationalism? Tower of Babel. And so do these others. It's very interesting. They don't necessarily believe in the historicity of the Tower of Babel, but they believe that in terms of the, of the legends and the history going back in time, this is where, uh, this is the legend that demonstrates how nations began and the importance of having these individual autonomous states that, that live. And so uh, we look at a map to sort of ori- orient ourselves, and this is a map of the different groups that came, came from Adam's three sons. And so you have this area here that is Asher. This is Assyria, Tigris, and Euphrates. So Asher's here. Babylon is over here on the Euphrates. That's uh, uh, Iraq. Asher is more towards uh, uh, Iran, which, of course, is really, uh, it's kind of more towards the north. And uh, Iran and Persia are the same over here. So this just shows that a lot of things really haven't changed uh, over all of the different decades. So when we look at this, it's interesting to understand what Nimrod is doing. So when we look at this particular passage... And we start in verse uh, 6. It talks about these are the sons of Ham. Cush, Cush is what we would call Ethiopia. It's south, of, uh, it's south of Egypt. Mitzrayim is Egypt. Put is Libya. The sons of Cush, and then lists the descendants of Cush. And one of his sons, his greater son, is Nimrod. Verse 8, Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one. A gibberim. We studied gibberim in Samuel the other night. He was a gibor. He is a mighty uh, one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And that can have the idea, it should be the, against the Lord. 
So he is setting himself up in opposition against the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter, against the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom, notice this. This is the first time we have this phrase. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Babel. Okay, Eric, Akkad, Kalna in the land of Shinar. So we look up here. Here is the land of Shinar. This is the lower, uh, lower part, southern part of, of Iraq, between the Euphrates and the, Ty- uh, uh, and the Tigris. And so right around in here, approximately, is where Babylon, which is Babel, that's where that is located. And so this is the beginning of his kingdom. What do you have here? You don't have mankind scattering upon the face of the earth. What you have is they gather together and they build an empire. The empire is against the plan of God, which is to scatter on the face of the earth. Now, let's just look at some of the ancient uh, legends of the Babylonians. Enuma Elish is the creation epic called the Babylonian Genesis in uh, a book written by um, Heidel. Had to work our way through this when I was uh, in seminary. And we read this. It starts off talking about Marduk. Marduk is the chief god in the pantheon of the Babylonian gods. And so what they're trying to do in this is they're explaining what happened, what God did, but they're rejecting God, so they've created these multiple gods, polytheism, and this is how they're explaining how things came into existence. And then uh, later you have the Gilgamesh epic, which explains the flood. So here we read about Marduk. When Marduk heard this, his countenance shone exceedingly like the day, and he said, so shall Babylon be. So he is all, he's the god of Babylon. So shall Babylon be whose construction you have desired. Let its brickwork be fashioned and call it a sanctuary. So it's going to be a temple, temple for, ba- uh, for Marduk. The, Anunuk, the Anunnaki wielded the hoe. One year they made bricks for it. When the second year arrived, they raised the head of Esagila on high level with the Apsu. After they had built the lofty stage tower of the Apsu, they established an abode therein for Marduk, Enlil and Ea. Those are two other uh, uh, gods, consorts of Marduk, I believe. And he sat down before them in majesty. Okay, there's usually a grain of truth in most mythologies. You have the mythologies that talk about the gods of the Greeks, the gods of all the other countries, all had gods who came down and raped women and produced half-breeds. That really reflects the sons of God coming down to the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6. So Marduk is this empire builder. He's building Babylon. He's building a temple there. What's interesting is the word, the word in Hebrew that means rebel uh, is, is a Hebrew word, um, marad. Now we look here at these two names. You have Marduk at the top, which if you take out the vowels, because all these ancient languages just wrote in consonantal alphabet, you have Marduk, M-R-D-K. I've underlined M-R-D. Then you have the name Imrod, Nimrod. You take out the vowels and you have the root is still M-R-D. So there is a correlation there, and the Semitic word, because this word marad is found in other cognate Semitic languages, and it means to rebel. So that that is a very interesting thing, that it connects Nimrod to Marduk. Nimrod's this mighty hunter on the earth. He's deified. All of these ancient civilizations deified their uh, emperors, their rulers, the Pharaoh, uh, they deified Roman emperors later on. They tried to deify Alexander the Great. Josephus tells us this about Nimrod. Nimrod persuaded them not to ascribe it to God as if it were through his means they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage and uh, their own courage which procured that happiness. 
He also gradually changed the government into tyrannies, seeing no other way of turning man from the fear of God but to bring them into constant dependence upon his power. See what, this is Josephus. Josephus, Flavius Josephus, is a a Jewish general during the time of the Jewish revolt against Rome. And he is captured around 66 or 67 AD. The revolt started in 66, was ended when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. Josephus was captured. He saw the power and might of Rome, tried to talk his Jewish uh, countrymen into surrendering to Rome and giving up the rebellion, which they didn't do. He was looked upon with favor by the uh, house of Flavius. So you, you have... Uh, uh, you, you have the army that is there that comes in, and it is led by uh, one who later becomes the army of Titus. Titus later becomes the emperor, and he's from the house of Flavius. So he's called Flavius Josephus. So this is this is his view. So this is reflects a very ancient tradition about Nimrod. He he is the originator of empire, the originator of kingdom, the originator of tyranny. And he is the one who's the driving force behind the Tower of Babel. Now, going to the same basic time period, you have a pharaoh in Egypt, Amenemhet I, who said, men dwelled in peace. After he expanded Egyptian power, he said, men dwelled in peace through what I had wrought. He's an empire builder. He is a globalist. This is original international. We're going to conquer everybody so we can create a Pax Egyptian. And so Hammurabi, who is a Babylonian king, a little bit later than the events that we're talking about in the Tower of Babel, and he saw his purpose as to bring the four quarters of the world to obedience. Empire builders, emperors who wanted to expand their kingdoms to bring in what then would have been a one world order, a global order in order to provide what only God can provide, which is peace, stability, and happiness. And so this gives us the background so that we can come to understand what happens at the Tower of Babel. And so what happens there, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit and give you a little preview of what's coming up. What happens there is that we have the coming of Babel. This is a medieval depiction, artist depiction of the Tower of Babel. And what happens after the events of Babel is that, let me, After the events of Babel, God is going to confuse their languages, and there's a play on words there, where Babel means just confusion in Hebrew. But the Babylonians call it Bab-el, el meaning God, Bab being gate, and that Babylon is the gate of God. And actually, through biblical history, this is really the city of man, and the focal point of human kingdoms versus Jerusalem, which is where God is going to build his kingdom. So this is uh, the gate of God and the sacred animal of Marduk, who's the patron deity of Babylon, is the dragon. Now, who shows up in the Bible as a dragon, the serpent of old, Satan, the accuser of the brethren? And archaeologist George Smith found an inscription in Babylon. He was a very well, uh, well-known, well noted archaeologist of the Victorian era. The building of the illustrious tower offended the gods. In a night they threw down what they had built. They scattered them abroad and made strange their speech. He found this on, inscribed on something in, in Babel. So here you have this idea of a of, of, of Babylon and the scattering of the languages that is given 
uh, authentication from other sources, non-biblical sources. And as we're looking at this whole idea of nations, just to conclude this, and then we'll come back next time and look at the actual events at Babylon in Genesis 11. Revelation 20, verse 8. This is at the end of the thousand years. Satan has been bound in uh, the abyss for a thousand years, and he will be released and will come out to deceive the nations. So this is in the millennial kingdom. There are going to be nations, but they're not going to be at war with each other. Revelation 21, 24, this is in the eternal state in the new heavens and new earth and says the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it. So there'll be nations and kings in eternity, in heaven. Well, actually, it will be on the new heavens and new earth. Revelation 21, 26, uh, they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. That is the new Jerusalem and then we have the uh, main street of Jerusalem in 22.2, and this is where uh, the, it's lined with the, uh, with the tree of life, and it bears its fruit, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of, or the health, actually, of the nations. So this is, this is what we have to look forward to. So nations, independent nations, sovereign nations, is part of God's plan. And as we'll see next time, there are clear statements in Scripture that God is the one who authorized borders and boundaries and that this idea of maintaining boundaries so that one group of people has an independent sovereign state and they are not to intrude upon other nations that have their sovereign states. And so this is important to develop what our understanding because what's interesting with these uh, these uh, American Israeli scholars, I mean, these guys are give, they have profoundly thought through this whole issue in ways that most of us can only imagine. But the idea of nations in Western Europe comes from this episode, from the Tower of Babel, from the study of Scripture, and it has shaped everything in our history, and it is the foundation of and it's foundational to understanding the Constitution because to have a nation, you have to have what? Three things. You have to have a piece of property that is yours and it's not anybody else's. You have to have a legal system. You have to have a people. And I'm going to add a fourth one. Those people have to have the ability to protect and defend themselves from those that would want to take that away from them. That's what comprises the idea of autonomous nations from the Tower of Babel all the way into uh, the Tribulation period. And it is internationalism that is uh, uh, rejecting the plan and the purpose of God. And it is internationalism that derives from the thinking of Satan. And so we have to just avoid that completely if we're going to survive as a nation. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things and to see how it is grounded in your word. And we pray that you would open up our minds to understand uh, what, how you develop this as it goes through Abraham, it goes through Moses, it goes through the Mosaic Law, the promise of God, the prophets up into the New Testament. It's validated by Jesus Christ. Uh, the Apostle Paul specifically states in Acts 17 that you establish the nations and their boundaries. All through Scripture we have this principle. Help us to understand why that is foundational to peace, to prosperity, and to the perpetuation of a nation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.